RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 284, The Forsaken. Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, The Forsaken, the one where Loxana Troy is very Loxana Troy, a group of ambassadors is very ambassadorial, and Odo is all over the place. John's got trivia coming up in a bit, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, without further ado, man alive, it's like we're being chased by something. We are already into trivia. (laughs) Here we go, Ken. Trivia. For the Forsaken, the story is by Jim Trombetta. That's not a familiar name to us, but Jim had a number of TV writing credits for a short burst in the late 80s and the first half of the 90s. He contributed to Miami Vice, The Equalizer, War of the Worlds. This is his first credited story for Star Trek, and we'll see a few more of his on DS9, and he'll complete his tour with one story for Voyager. The teleplay is by Don Carlos Dunaway and Michael Piller, Don Carlos is another new name for us. This is his only connection to Star Trek, and like Jim Trombetta, he also sold a script to The Equalizer, but that's where their common shows end. Don Carlos got his start in the early 70s, and his professional credits end with this episode of Deep Space Nine. The Forsaken was directed by Les Landau. Ah, okay, so now we're back in familiar territory with Les. We just talked about his long career with Trek, going back to the pilot for Next Gen, then his jump into directing, and his most recent DS9 episode for our rewatch was Progress. Now, there's a couple of minor crossovers with TNG here. Uh, We meet a Ducterian here at the beginning of the show, and we first met that species in Next Gen's Firstborn, but that episode aired a year later than this one. Of course, another major crossover with Loaxana talking about being trapped on a Ferengi freighter with her daughter in Menage a Troy. I'm sorry, you're leaving out the biggest crossover. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Loaxana. Yes, of course, Loaxana herself is a huge crossover, and this is the first of three appearances on DS9 for her, played by Majel Barrett. Hey, you know what? I said Majel Barrett. That brings us into guest stars, Ken. <laughs> so... Major Barrett Roddenberry, of course, here reprising the role of Loaxana Troy. Now let's talk about the newcomers, shall we? We have Tosco, played by Constance Towers. Constance is mostly known and very well-known in those circles for musical theater. She actually started with her eye on a career in opera, soon transitioned to theater, and then made the jump into TV and film. TV audiences might recognize her from guest spots on Ellie Law, Murder, She Wrote, and a very long stint on General Hospital. We have Loyal, the Vulcan, is played by Michael Ensign. This show marks the second of four Trek appearances for Michael, the first being Minister Krola. And what episode, Ken? Uh, That would be First Contact, John. That would be the episode First Contact, not to be confused with the movie First Contact. Correct. And now he'll be back for one each appearance on Voyager and Enterprise. Now, he's also had a very long and varied career. We've talked about that before. You saw him in Titanic. He was Benjamin Guggenheim, who famously in real life and in the movie changed into his best clothes in order to die like a gentleman. He's also quite memorable in that small role, the hotel manager in the original Ghostbusters. 
Vedasia, the Bolian, is played by Jack Shearer. While this is chronologically Jack's first Trek appearance, we have seen him before, and we'll see him again in First Contact, the movie, this time, Ken, not the episode, but in the movie First Contact, he was Admiral Hayes, and we just catch him on a view screen, but that's a crossover with another show. His character will recur in Voyager a couple of times, but we will see him as yet different characters, too, once more in DS9 and yet another character on Voyager. Now, outside of Trek, you may have spotted him in judge roles on Ally McBeal and Boston Legal and uh, 24 and the X-Files. And what can I say? He makes a good judge. He was great in Judge Dredd. <laughs> See all the judges, all the judges. We also have a Bajoran computer engineer named Anara, played by Benita Andre. She doesn't have a terribly long resume, mostly TV appearances uh, on Common Ground, The Shield, and Monk, to name a few. Her first professional gig, though, was in one of the all-time great movie comedies, The Three Amigos. And this is a good episode to talk about the computer voice, Judy Duran. Now, of course, we're on a Cardassian station, not a Federation vessel, so the computer is going to sound a little bit different. Judy, as you might suspect, has a pretty long career as a voiceover actor. She's been featured in shows like Max Headroom and V. In feature films, her voice shows up in a handful of Disney projects, and she was the announcer for The Afterlife in Beetlejuice. And she has done a lot of Star Trek. Chances are good that if it's not Majel, it's Judy Durand. She was the space dock computer voice in Star Trek Three, and she's the voice of pretty much all the Cardassian computers we've ever encountered. And she plays the Federation computer voice in many Star Trek video games. This week, Deep Space Nine has an infestation of galactic proportions. They are in quarks. They are in ops. They are in the living quarters. Deep Space Nine has ambassadors. Prologue. A delegation of Federation ambassadors is on board DS9, there to give a look at the wormhole. They are not a lot of fun. There's a Bolian, a Vulcan, and an Arbazan who isn't satisfied with anything. Sisko knew better and made himself scarce while assigning Dr. Bashir to look after them, presently at Quark's bar. Oh, there is one more ambassador. Remember Loaxana Troy? As in Deanna's mother, as in daughter of the fifth house, holder of the sacred chalice, etc., etc. Well, she's here too, and she's making quite a fuss because someone stole the latinum hair brooch that she was wearing. Odo shows up at Quark's to do his thing. He asks Loaxana to use her telepathic abilities to help narrow down a suspect. She can't read Quark, since he's a Ferengi, but he wouldn't have done it anyway. It's a petty crime. There is a Dupterian, though, another species that can't be read by a Betazoid. Odo has him empty his pockets. Sure enough, there's the brooch. Loaxana is grateful and very impressed, and she asks Bashir to tell her everything about Odo. Act 1. O'Brien is up to his golden locks in computer trouble. The Cardassian system on board DS9 doesn't jibe with his expectations of operational efficiency, and he can't get it to play nicely when he wants to tweak the system. Cisco says it's fine, leave it alone. But you know engineers, they like to change everything. Cisco gives him permission to do a rebuild to root out the problem. Around this time, the three ambassadors are on a tour of the station and come up to ops with Dr. Bashir. Their timing is good. A mysterious object has just emerged from the wormhole, so that's something to see, even though they are completely unimpressed. Sisko gives the look to Bashir. You know the look. The one that says, get these people out of here so we can get some work done. But where was the other ambassador, Luaxana, during all this? She's found Odo's security office, and she lays it on kind of thick about how impressive his skills, his heroism truly is. Odo is all business thanking her for thanking him for doing his job. He's done, but she's not. Loaxana says she's never been with a shapeshifter, and the prospect is intriguing. She gets closer and closer to him, which makes Odo more nervous than we've ever seen him. He fakes that there's something that needs his attention, 
and off he runs. Act 2. O'Brien is making a little headway with the computer. At least it's cooperating enough to download data from that mysterious probe they found earlier. The probe is pretty impressive. It's packing just a ton of computer power, but literally nothing else. It doesn't quite add up. What is far more important right now, though, is Odo. Rather, it's Odo's personal life, which he confides in Cisco. Loxana Troy is coming on to him something fierce. He doesn't know what to make of it and really isn't interested in a romance. Too bad, Cisco says. That's his problem, and nobody else's. If he's going to let her down, he should do it with some delicacy. So off Odo goes, and somewhere on the promenade, Luaxana tracks him down, offering a romantic evening in one of the hollow suites. He declines and tries to escape by jumping into a turbo lift for the long trip to Upper Pylon 3, but of course, she jumps right in with him. He pleads his case again. He's not interested. He's not like her. He's a shapeshifter who turns into liquid every 16 hours. And a second later, the power in the turbo lift is lost. Some kind of computer error, and even ops can't beam them out of there. O'Brien is summoned to start working on it, but in the meantime, Loaxana sees an opportunity. Act 3. Seriously, isn't there a genius bar around here somewhere? Everything looks like it should be working, but it just isn't. No turbo lift, no transporter, and of course, the way the Cardassians built their turbo lift, there's live current everywhere, which means Odo can't just turn himself into a worm or something and wiggle his way out. So he's stuck with Waxana. They're trying to talk each other out of any fear or discomfort they have. Odo says he'd like to just stay quiet, but, you know, that's not Loaxana's style. She says she's attracted to a quiet man, but she's really got to talk this out. Let's return now to those heady days of TNG Season 3, right about at the end, when Loaxana was trapped on a Ferengi freighter with Diana and Commander Riker. It was terrible, she says, while at the same time saying it was thrilling and passionate and sexy. And where exactly is this going? Odo was doing his best to tune it all out, wondering exactly how bad it would be if he exposed himself to one of those live electrical circuits. Bashir, in the meantime, is unloading on Sisko about how insufferable this group of ambassadors really is. He hates this assignment, and Sisko basically tells him he's paying his dues. He used to do this kind of thing himself until one day he punched one member of the group he was escorting. Side note, do not punch one of these ambassadors. Seriously. O'Brien is still hard at work on the computer. He's just as confused as ever now because things seem to be getting better. And not because he's done anything. Ever since they downloaded the data from that mystery probe, the DS9 computer is acting nicer. Things still don't work, but the attitude is gone. Here's another thing O'Brien has noticed, too. As soon as he steps away to do anything... Something goes wrong, requiring his attention. It's like the computer wants him to be there. Act 4. Dax has a theory. The computer may be showing signs of a personality because of what they downloaded from the probe. Think of it this way. An evolving, non-biological life form has planted itself in their systems, taking advantage of whatever operational computer cores they've got. It doesn't seem malicious, it just is what it is. It still poses enough of a threat that they need to eradicate it from the station, and O'Brien thinks a way to do that is simply to upload everything they brought on back to the probe. Easier said than done, though. The computer is sort of fighting back. The upload stream is broken on every attempt, and at one point more systems on DS9 fail. Heating, lighting. Those ambassadors are not impressed. But when have they been happy with anything? Bashir offers to escort them back to their quarters while all these glitches get worked on. It'll take some time, though, which leads us back to another non-operational system, the turbo lift. Laksana has wrapped up what we can guess is a multi-hour monologue about herself. Then the attention turns to Odo, where we learn he bases humanoid appearance on the Bajoran scientist who studied him. He grew up, as it were in a lab, 
the prospect of which Loaxana finds very lonely. He's had a lot of trouble fitting in, and Loaxana is sympathetic to what he's been through. What's happening right now, though, is a little more dire. Odo is losing composure, bodily. It's only a matter of time, but his body will turn into a liquid, as it does, in perhaps less than an hour. O'Brien, still cracking away, is more of a manual procedure at this point. The tactic is a clever one. Everybody in ops will distract the computer with increasingly complex commands while they move over the probe data. As the delicate procedure unfolds, the computer voice gets a little slower, a little groggier. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. Will it dream? Can't answer that just yet, because as the computer is grappling with all these commands, a plasma surge builds up in the habitat ring of the station. It happens to be right where Bashir is escorting the ambassadors, leading them into a huge fireball. Fire suppression systems are yet another thing not working on the station, leaving Bashir and the ambassadors in an inferno. Act 5. Sisko and Kira run off to try to rescue Bashir and the ambassadors. Meanwhile, O'Brien and Dax continue to try to outsmart the computer. The program hobbling their system seems to thrive on attention. O'Brien says it's like a puppy that needs constant attention and wants to be where the action is. What they have to do to get it to go away, then, is the exact opposite. Whatever that means. Odo is faring worse. His body is starting to lose cohesion, and he's genuinely feeling a deeply personal unease, a kind of vulnerability he hasn't shown anyone. Loxana does her best to show Odo she's there for him and has nothing to worry about. She hands him her wig. This is what she looks like underneath how she doesn't want others to see her. Odo's body gives way, and he reverts to his liquid form, and Loaxana catches him in her dress. O'Brien has been at work, of course, and he set up the equivalent of a computer doghouse for the pup that's jamming up their system. By moving the program into a controlled environment where it looks like there's something going on, the station systems return to an operable state. Not a moment too soon, because Kira and Sisko have had a bear of a time trying to reach everyone in the habitat ring. The doors finally open, the lights work, the fire suppression system kicks in. What they find is Dr. Bashir, who had very quickly thought on his feet, hiding himself and the ambassadors in the Cardassian equivalent of a Jeffrey's tube. They're fine. And for once, they seem grateful. Odo is also fine. And he's in his humanoid form once again. He thanks Loxana for her care, her understanding, and her discretion. And how about that pup, the computer program? Well, it's a life form, stopping by DS9 for a visit. It's not hurting anyone anymore, and with it sequestered from the rest of the critical systems, it'll just stay, virtually, as long as it wants. O'Brien has himself a 24th century Tamagotchi. Those of you born after 1995 can look it up. The end. Stop me if you've heard this one. Mm -hmm. A Bullion, a Vulcan, and an Arbazan. Arbazan? Arbazan. <laughs> a Bullion, a Vulcan, and another ambassador walk into Quarks. Oh, oh, wait. Uh, yeah, I, I like where this is going. Yeah. You have heard I, this yeah, one, though, because you actually just told it. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, this sounds like the setup for for many a DS9 episode <laughs> that we've had and and to come. Indeed. Yeah. But thank goodness there's a Bolian among the ambassadors because who else would do their hair? Oh, I know. There's a lot of travel. You're absolutely right. There is a a nice effect in this episode that we have not seen before. Uh, in the turbo lift on the way up Pylon 3, that moving wall in front of the actors, all green screen, of course, but it, it really did a nice job of indicating the size of the station. And I thought, man, we've come a long way from a, a guy just moving a light bulb in the turbo lift on the original series and, and next gen for that matter. You see, I, I see, here's the thing. I think I like it better on next gen for a couple of reasons. Well, really one reason. There are really no interior doors on the turbo lift. 
Uh, it seems dangerous, but they're, they're Cardassians. They, they, you know, they're, they're dangerous people. <laughs> they are. They'll, they'll take the risk. They're a dangerous lot. That's true. The other thing is, and I'm having a hard time again, and I know people, you know, fought back at me on this, but I'm going to stand by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think there are probably more than 300 people living on DS9. And if there are not more <laughs> than 300 people living on DS9, that is a lot of wasted space. Hey, remember when they wanted to move all 50 people off that moon a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of room on DS9. (laughs) Doors are open on DS9. Kira could have said, look, guy whose name I can't remember who looks a lot like Judge Hardcastle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come live with Mullabach. Mullabach, I believe it was. Uh, Come live with me on DS9 and we'll have crazy adventures and... There are a lot of open cases that need to be solved or something. We, we got we got turbo lifts and we got uh, uh, big doors. And if you get hungry, there's an emu running around. There's an emu and we can send out for some of that nasty root you like so much. I mean, really. <laughs> <sighs> Callbacks, ladies and gentlemen. It's what's for dinner. Who, who wouldn't want to live there? And the answer to Odo, everybody. Everybody would not want to live there. So I had a problem with the fact that the Cardassians built their turbo lifts with no doors, uh, no interior doors anyway. I know you had another problem. Well, it dawned on me that like the Cardassians are just building anything, even the most innocuous thing to be a death trap or or to instill fear Mm. in the occupants. Because remember, the ambassador says, "I, I can't sleep in that room. I've got a gargoyle staring down at me. On the bed, and I was thinking, this is this is Cardassian interior design. This is their sense of humor. It's just like every room on board. It could be like a nursery, and they just want to make it look terrifying to everybody who goes in there. It's like that thing in uh, in Galaxy Quest that they have to run through, and they're like, "Why did they even build this?" <laughs> right, right. That's probably yeah. what's at the heart of uh, Deep Space Nine, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I will so. say, I, I do have to wonder how it is that they're actually still working with the Cardassian computer system. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, remember when they found that Bajoran bomb that had been sitting there for years and years that they accidentally triggered, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, how do we know the Cardassians aren't going to email an Order 66 at some point? Oh, because you know they have one. Please. How how are they sitting there still with the Cardassian computer? That's just insane. When they were going through all the Cardassian files recently, they probably triggered something that's going to, like, come back and kill them sometime (laughs) before the end of Season 7. That's my guess. Probably. Probably so. I will also say, and and this is the uh, this is the hitchhiker in me. If you want to confound a computer, ask it why you might like the taste of tea. Oh, yeah, okay, because that's right. deadly, and we all know that. It, and if yeah. there's no infinite improbability drive to press, yeah, you're toast at that point. Which which you know goes okay with tea. It's all right. Yeah. All right, so look, I, I know that we'll have plenty to say about Loxana later in this episode. Uh, her that moment where she's looking back with some some fondness from her time of being kidnapped by Daemon Tog. Uh, that was the Daemon uh, in Menage Troy. Is yeah, yeah, it's funny, uh, but it's also not. <laughs> um, I, I don't really have much more to add in this part because, like I said, I know we'll we'll come back to this. She plays it well, but I just want us to all remember what happened in that episode. They they were kidnapped, they were prisoners, and she basically decides to give herself to help them get out of that situation. Of course, we all we end it with the funny uh, uh, Picard soliloquy, yeah, proclaiming his love, but. There's a lot of weirdness going on in that episode. Strange to me that that's not the part that she told uh, Odo about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. It was absolutely horrible. It was absolutely terrible. But it was a dashing man, not unlike you and Quarks, who came to my aid and blah, blah, blah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, she's like, she's totally into the whole uh, Ferengi part of it, which yeah. is weird because she was totally looking to get out of the Ferengi part of it in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of a uh, Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing, if you ask me. All right, so Odo in the lift, he, he says, uh, he talks about being the, the life of the party. Odo, be a chair. I'm a chair. First of all, that's been your point all along. <laughs> the, the nightmare existence that is Odo's. He he is all chair and all things that sit on a chair all the time. That's well, you know? he no, he is all one of those things at some point. He's not all of yeah. those things all the time. I mean, you're making him sound like the prophets for crying out loud. No, <laughs> no, but, but at any point, he's, he's like Schrodinger's chair. At, at, you know, at some point, he could be a chair, 
or he could not be a chair. Odo, be a razor cat. I'm a razor cat. Life of the party. Again, chair. I have a problem with that. But second of all, how about a fish cat? Ooh. I'm just going to throw that out there as a, a request next time anybody sees Odo at a party. Kazinti. <laughs> Kazinti. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes, yes. You're welcome. Now, of course, I, I referenced it before, the, the scene of Anara pulling out the computer core chips while Dax and Cisco give commands is like 2001, A Space Odyssey, with uh, winding down Hal. It, it's a, a pretty wonderful little uh, tip of the hat there. It, well, it is a nice tip of the hat, unless it's a ripoff, <laughs> but I prefer to think it is a tip of the hat. An homage, if you yes. will, because, uh, yeah, it's it's too obvious to not be... You have to read that like homage. I mean, down to the colors. It's not just the winding mm-hmm. down, but it's the, you know, taking out the red things. Yeah. And if you haven't seen 2001, you way don't know what a Tamagotchi is. Or maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> maybe. have seen two, th- yeah, eh, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's one other question that, I, that I, I don't want to ask, but I feel I have to ask it. Okay. Uh, should we ask what Waxana's dress is made of? And... <laughs> Why would she need or want it to be waterproof? That was great. The part where John pretends to be a computer dying? That was great. Nothing is ever as amusing as pretending an intelligent computer is being permanently shut down. Really. Seriously. Just great. We'll address The Forsaken in a moment, and we'll talk about the episode. But first... But first, a word... From the clothing section, it's like the Mission Log fashion line, inspired by lines from Mission Log. Lines like, you see, Timmy, and here's a look at my robot guts. Our friend Carl does some stellar design work. It's like what he does. And one day he sent us a t-shirt design, and two years later, because we are very slow on the uptake, we called him and said, may we please fill a shop with your designs? Thankfully, he said yes, which is how you get to show your Lieutenant J. Ness your support for the Silicon side of life and your love for the Ditalics Mining Corporation. New designs hit pretty frequently, and some of your old favorites are there as well. Ethos, Pathos, and Logos are represented, and of course, you can still be cool as Kirk. Ken, you just mentioned it, a perfect tie-in. Dax calls the pup in this a non-biological life form because it all just comes down to how you define life, man. So sign her up for a Silicon Supporter t-shirt. Oh, you could sign her up for a t-shirt, but you could sign her up for so much more, John. Oh, oh, you mean like stickers or tapestries? Oh, yeah. There's so much. There's so much Mission Log and Star Trek goodness in the Mission Log podcast shop. Here's what you do. You go to missionlogpodcast.com. You click shop at the top of the page, and then you commence shopping. And send us a pic of you with your new Mission Log wares. So you support this show and you look cool doing it. Click shop at the top of the page at missionlogpodcast.com. So, um, John had something that he wanted to say about a certain segment of the Star Trek population. Uh, and not population, because it sounds like then we're going to say something bad about uh, Ferengi or Klingons or, or Borg, for that matter. Uh, there is a certain, oh, profession, let's say. And, uh, and John Champion had a few thoughts. I- I'm going to come out and say it, uh, that I don't think ambassadors are a protected class. Uh, I think they're terrible. I think they're just absolutely terrible and, and almost to the extent of being a, uh, a cliche now because mm-hmm. they're terrible. <laughs> I mean, and, and here's the thing. If you are sending people around the galaxy to represent you and your culture and your planet and everything that, that your place has to offer, please send the best and brightest and not these people. And, uh, and by the way, please pass the sweet and sour shrimp. But can you say that in Vulcan? I'm working on it. Yeah, here's the thing. I I wondered, honestly, because, yes, they're terrible in this episode, and it's become a joke that they're terrible. What I found myself wondering watching this, because these ambassadors in particular just seem to be incredibly terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should we ask whether they're saying something about them in this episode? I mean, about the people who sit far away and make decisions versus the people who are actually, you know, doing the doing, Mm -hmm. right? Because you got one who's like, my quarters are terrible. Give me yours. You got another one who's like, well, this young lady obviously doesn't have the experience to handle this. And then he starts to sort of push his way past, even though she's actually older than he is. If you count, you know, 
the trill she feels inside. The captain was happy to hear my suggestions, says the bullion, as I'm sure Commander Sisko will be as well. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is this just the usual higher-ups are terrible, or are they saying something more in this episode, or is this actually what they were saying since the start of TNG, which is when being an ambassador really got terrible, or is this just the longest-running uh, most worn out or maybe second most worn out joke. We'll figure that out later. This is one of the most worn out jokes in Star Trek at this point. Uh, that's not actually saying anything at all. Yeah. I, I kind of asked myself the same thing because when the episode started and this was a new episode to me. Mm-hmm. So when the episode started and we kicked off with the ambassadors in Quarks being terrible, I just thought, okay, well it, it can't just be this. <laughs> it can't just be the one note. And then we introduce Loxana, who is her own kind of terrible, though she has certainly certainly a lot more complexity in these other characters. Oh, do you think she does? Or is it only because we've seen her for six or seven episodes before this? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. She, we, we have seen a lot of her. We've seen depth to her character. Now, we can make a judgment call about that depth, about how much we've seen uh, or or how valuable it is. But she's had more screen time than any of these other ambassadors so far. I'm asking a different question, though, because, yes, we know her. But let's say somebody is watching DS9 for the first time. Heck, let's say somebody is watching Star Trek for the first time and this is what they see. Is she any better in this episode than the other ambassadors are in this episode? I mean, until we get to the part with the wig. Right, right. I say at the beginning, no. She she's insufferable and pushy, and uh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of the the Luaxana that we expect. But then we also expect Luaxana to be handed some dimension, some some little sliver of redemption in there. She can't be all terrible. The other ambassadors are all terrible, <laughs> and we we've met other good ambassadors. I'm I'm going to say there's this one that I remember quite fondly. Goes by the name of Sarek. Hmm. You might have heard of him. Yeah. Not a bad ambassador. Not a bad guy to have around. Well, not bad in the middle. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, you don't want to be a son or <laughs> No, anything. he was terrible the first time we saw him, and then he was a little yeah. loopy the last time we saw him. But right in the middle yeah. there, he was kind of okay, except again, yes, you're right. Yeah, you he don't, was great. You don't want to yeah. be raised by him. Well, unless you're not his son. <laughs> right. But no, I, I, I know what you're asking. It, it, was this a statement? And the argument has been made many times that you go back to TOS and you've got Gene Roddenberry with this sort of anti-authoritarian streak. And every time there's a Commodore or an Admiral or somebody who outranks Captain Kirk and they carry that over into next gen, somebody who outranks Picard, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> and, you know, and, and even Kirk, even Kirk, when he when we re-meet him at the beginning of motion picture – the worst thing has happened to him. He's got a desk job. He now has a higher rank than being captain of the Enterprise. So I think there's some truth to that in what maybe even just subconsciously Gene was infusing into the shows or into the the, the scripts that he got to sort of put his hands on a little bit. Hmm. But I think we're to a point now where post-Gene Roddenberry Star Trek, not only that, we're, we're post TNG Star Trek, DS9 is its own thing, is its own animal, but I feel like they're falling back on this trope. Um, so I, I'm really not going to cut them any slack here of uh, they're making a statement. I just think they were writing broad characters who would be awful enough to create a little conflict and then hand Bashir some redemption at the end. Well, not that Bashir needed redeeming necessarily in this episode. But they they manufacture a, a, a bit of niceness at the end, so I, I don't think it's really all that effective because they are so cartoonish. They are so cartoonish, and honestly, it's because they were so cartoonish that I wondered if they were trying to do something more. Because if they're not trying to do something more, they're doing even less than they normally do with the yeah. ambassador class. But you know, whatever. Yeah. We're only in we're only in season one. We got seven more seasons mm-hmm. of this, and then seven more seasons of something else, and then who knows how many other seasons of other things. But this was just, yeah, this yeah. this was a particularly bad showing uh, for yeah. uh, for ambassadors. All right, but let's talk character. Let's talk other characters and how much character is driven home in this episode. I, there are a lot of good moments in this episode, and it, to me, it's sort of 
well, you just said that we're here in season one, but it's almost become a cliche to keep pointing out all the really great talents in this series that produce so many great moments. Rene Aubergenois is wonderful, and I could watch him as Odo talking about himself all day long. He, he makes the most out of every line of dialogue and, and every moment. And I thought what was nice here, and I, I read an interview with, uh, with one of the writers, that it was an intentional thing. There's this examination of manhood here, or, or at least the examination of outward strength versus internal needs. Odo exhibits what many people do, this need to be tough and together on the outside, almost to the total exclusion of accepting help from others or showing any sort of vulnerability. And it's very moving to see the walls crack with him. It, it makes him a more whole character uh, for us to see him like that. And look, we've been tough on Majel, specifically we've been tough on Loxana, and I don't think this episode fully redeems her. The problem is there's just been so much of her up until now, and it hasn't all been good. But here's the question about Loxana. How do we feel about her constant pursuit of Odo, played for comedy, while we've come down pretty hard on Bashir for not taking a hint when he should back off from Dax? Well, I hate it. <laughs> and done yeah there you go no no i mean I, i've actually I, there's more on that because um yeah so we always talk about the fact that we don't read each other's notes we do read to find out if there's a place to put our own notes right mm -hmm. so like if mm -hmm. i see something pop up you know that I'll, I'll i'll go ahead and you know drop something else in there that i was planning on saying or planning on you know uh, us talking about um I did find myself sort of like I was talking about with the ambassadors. I found myself wondering whether we're learning about um, her type, actually, because we can talk about we, we can talk about her. Yeah, she's just as sexist in this episode as any guy that we've ever said is constantly chasing a woman. I mean, she's yeah. just as I mean, well, not sexist, but um, it's sexual harassment, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's and, and I know it's like, oh, but it's funny. And she's a middle aged woman. And it's always funny to see a middle aged woman lust after somebody because they aren't sexual beings. <sighs> I mean, yeah. there, there's a lot wrong with it, but we can come back to that in a bit. I did find myself wondering, honestly, whether we were learning about her type. And I think the answer is no, but hear me out anyway. Uh, <laughs> what I had had written down was I do wonder whether we're learning something about who she's attracted to, namely people who are not attracted to her, hmm. uh, with the exception of Timison and the guy on the holodeck in season one or two of Next Gen. I can't remember which. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's generally speaking to and chasing guys who just aren't that into her. And I wonder if, if that's because, you know, she chases every guy and you can't win them all. Or she is attracted to uh, people uh, who, and, and bear in mind, she has telepathic ability. She can read whether or not they're into her, and yet she continues to pursue people who are not attracted to her. Yeah. Now, I don't think this episode was actually saying that, but again, maybe along the lines of the cartoonishness of the ambassadors, I found myself, I don't want to say I was grasping for something to talk about here, but things were so cartoonish for so much of this episode that they put... They put things that we would normally maybe go, yeah, but we'll give it a pass. They put those things in stark relief. I mean, they were so bad and they were so on the screen as far as these character traits that that I, I really sort of had to think about why this was happening. Now, I don't think that was anything that they were actually trying to say. I think it's probably just being played for humor here that, you know, Loxana is always trying to get a man. But, you know, looking over her appearances now on two series... <laughs> I also found myself wondering, is this everywhere she goes? Is this like every week for her? Like the weeks that we don't see her, is this happening to someone else somewhere else as well? I miss, I miss, I miss the Loxana from Half a Life because yeah. boy, oh boy, was that an amazing character. Was that a well-realized character? I felt so much from her. I felt so much for her. And, and boy, was she mature in that. And I don't mean middle-aged or older i mean she was a very mature character in that and uh, i would love to have seen her uh in this episode so i mean i i don't think they were really trying to say anything but you tell me was there something else we should pick up from that besides discomfort 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's I, I almost feel like I'm jumping ahead to the last segment here. Because, yeah, I kind of feel like uh, I did that too. my bad. Well, but, but, but that's OK. I mean, it, it we're trying to examine the character and what they're trying to get across with the character. But I think that ties into just sort of the production reality of where we are. We're, we're getting we're past the midway point. We're getting toward the end of the first season. We know that even the best laid plans of a season of TV at least the way it was produced in the 90s, is that you're shooting as you're writing and you run out of ideas, run out of scripts, you run out of budget. This is a bottle show. It's all on the station. And I feel like there's sort of a shorthand here where you have this really meaty stuff with Odo and you say, okay, we have this strong actor. Let's give him some stuff to chew on. But then all these other characters are like Commedia dell'arte. You know, they're, they're just, uh, well, we'll just paint with a really broad brush here. And oh, wait, well, if we have terrible ambassadors who are two dimensional cartoons anyway, let's put Loxana in there too. She'll fit right in. And it's just sort of, uh, it, it's the kind of thing that should have gone back through the system of the writer's room a couple of more times to decide is that really going to be the best use? of this screen time for these characters. And, and I don't think it is because it, it, it hurts everything that they're setting out to do with the really good stuff in this episode. Hmm. Let's talk about one other thing here before we do move along to the wrap up. And, and that's just a, a brief thing about the, the DS nine computer because it shows signs of intelligence. Once we've got that, uh, uh, the, the probe data in there, and um, we're not even at the end of the first season yet. And this seems like a theme now that Star Trek is actually trying to grapple with. Do we assign rights or thoughts or feelings to manufactured intelligence? Or is it just back to business as usual next week and we forget about all the times the Enterprise computer tried to take over the ship or kill us or that time it gave birth, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly could not help but think of how happy Keiko is going to be to find out that Miles now has something else he has to do <laughs> when he's not at Ops. Yes. Because I don't know if you, because I mean, you mentioned Tamagotchi. Should we explain to people who don't know or don't remember what that was? I mean, oh, aside sure. from yeah, like a yeah, gigantic yeah. time suck for everybody of a certain age. Right. Yeah. Right. It was like uh, Gigapets, I think they were also called, weren't they? Yep. Yep. It was basically a virtual pet. It was a thing, and it was about the size of, I don't know, a little bit bigger than a digital watch, I suppose, but smaller than the first iPhone. And uh, it was an LED screen, but you had, to, you had to do stuff to keep it alive. It was like a puppy or a kitten, or I don't even know what. I don't remember. Or a bunny or whatever, and it was sort of beep at you, and you have to hit a button to feed it, or you'd have to hit another button to make it go to sleep, or whatever. Right. And it's like on a keychain, so you have it in your pocket all the time, right? and it, it needs your attention. And if you didn't feed it, it would die. <laughs> right. Right. And Miles O'Brien has now adopted one of those. And <laughs> it would have been great if he had said, oh, no, I'll make sure it stays busy and everything. And, and I wish Cisco had gone, really? Because you got a kid that we see like <laughs> once every six months. <laughs> that poor computer puppy left in a computer cage and all of the useless stuff that happened with the ugly bags of mostly water it is time to see what we can take from the forsaken now we come to the part of the episode where we discuss the messengers morals and meanings of the episode the forsaken unless you were listening last uh, segment in which case we discuss them again the Forsaken, John. Uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, I'm going to give them some credit here to say that the B-plot is tied to the A-plot. <laughs> All right, which one is the B-plot and which one is the A-plot as far as uh -huh, you're concerned? Because I, so <laughs> I had this debate with a friend of mine, and they were like, uh, A-plot doesn't even matter in this episode. And then I'm like, well, then I would argue it's not the A-plot. And they were like, oh, but that's what like caused everything to happen. And I'm like, yeah, but still... Because cause, uh, cause their argument was that the A-plot was the one with the computer, and my argument was that the A-plot theoretically was the one with, uh, with, uh, with Odo and Waxana, though I would actually be willing to argue there is no A-plot in this episode. 
Okay, see, so it's so funny that you had that argument with a friend. I had the same exact argument, but uh, just in my head, I did not have a friend to discuss this with. So, um, All right, I was making up my friend. Jeez. Okay, okay. okay. But uh, yes, I, I, as I wrote out my notes, I kept coming back to it thinking, well, well, wait, do I mean A here or do I mean B here? Because I'm not sure. No, I come down on the same side as you do that the B plot is the computer plot. The A plot is actually the Odo plot. Um and the problem here is that the B plot is so unengaging. And I felt like the more I rewatched the episode, I was mentally editing out all the dialogue with O'Brien regarding the station computer. Right. So I, I absolutely 100% did not care about any of that. And here's the thing. We have a guest star with a good deal of dialogue, and I managed to write the recap completely ignoring her. Because she's so inconsequential. And it's nothing against Benita Andre at all. Because anybody who is in The Three Amigos, I think, is amazing. But the Inara character could have just had all of her lines given to someone else and we would not have noticed. Um, I did care about the A-plot, but that's more because of Odo than it is because of Waxana. Mm -hmm. And it's just purely on the strength of what Rene Aubergenois brings to the screen. Um, I, I got some problems with Loxana here. Um, but he is so good in this that that saved the episode for me. However, it didn't save it in the way that I'll answer your question, does the episode hold up? As an episode, no. Because the fact that we would have this conversation – What's the A plot? What's the B plot? Who do I care about? Who who do I not care about? That shows an episode that doesn't work. It, it reveals that as a production, it just doesn't come together. However, it is an episode that has great moments in it and some great performances in it. But that's it. Uh, so it does not hold up. But I'm glad that we watched it and I'm glad that we got to pick it apart here. Because there are things of value in this. Um, how about you, sir, on the uh, does it hold up or not angle? Um, let me answer that this way. Okay. Emissary. I remember it. Past prologue. Mm -hmm. Captive pursuit. Battle lines. Progress. I bring these up to remind people that there have been several episodes of Deep Space Nine that I have liked. Some more than others. But I would say there have been several that I both appreciated and enjoyed. Uh, you will notice I did not mention The Forsaken in this <laughs> list. I also did not mention If Wishes Were Horses. And I hate the fact that we're to this the week after that, because I believe what I said uh, last week was that I hated that episode. Yeah. I do not care about anything that happens in this episode. And what I do care about, I don't like. So I guess I shouldn't say I don't care about anything. Most of what happens here, I, I don't care about. And what I do care about, I don't like that it happens the way it does. Um, what happens with Julian, between the ambassadors and him, should have happened on screen. In a well-written episode, that could have been the A-plot. We've been looking for reasons to like this character. And rather than show us a reason to like this character, they're just telling us that the other people have found a reason to like the character. Right. Mm -hmm. Something because you said earlier, you know, there's redemption for Julian. You say he doesn't need redemption. I say, yes, he does. I say he very much needs redemption. And they basically told us, oh, don't worry about him. He's actually cool now. Well, Seriously? hang on. I, I, I want to be I want to be specific, though. He doesn't he doesn't need redemption in the eyes of those terrible, terrible people from from. The journey that we've taken with the Bashir character, all the weird like sexual harassment and awkwardness and all. Yes, that character needs to be fixed. Right. But in, in the eyes of the ambassadors, at the end of the day, they're going to leave the station. And if I were Cisco or Bashir or anybody else, I would say I do not care what they think about when they leave. Okay, so, right. Except yeah. we finally have him doing something truly heroic here. I mean, I didn't talk about the fact that he was willing to rush into danger and battle lines, right? Mm -hmm. He was willing to, you know, go straight in. And there have been a couple of times, too. I, I can't remember which episode it was, but there was one where there were a bunch of injured people on Deep Space Nine. And he was just, he was just, he was a doctor. He was a good doctor. Yeah, and I yeah. expect him to be a good doctor because he graduated medical school. What I need him to be is a good character if I'm going to watch him for seven years. Oh, right. And so far, he has not been. And I know he's going to be, and it's fine. And I know I'm being hard on him right now. I'm actually being hard on the writers because he finally did something that you would say any 
member of Starfleet would be celebrated for doing, saving people's lives in the face of, you know, imminent peril, especially people who have given him nothing but 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 the back of their hand the whole way through the episode, right? Mm-hmm. He did something great here, or at least we're told he did, and for some reason we're not allowed <laughs> to see that. Uh, the part where the computer is becoming sentient, I love that kind of story, and they made me not care at all about that. It's so yes. interesting. Every time I watch this, like all of a sudden, they're all giving the computer something different to do to try to shut it down. And I don't remember them deciding to do that. And, and, and I'm sure they actually talked about it. But every time I watched it, it just like <laughs> I, it, it just didn't stick for yeah. some reason. Uh, the parts between Odo and Loxana um, are terrible. She's always been overbearing, but in this episode, first, she is guilty of sexual harassment, I think, or guilty of harassment at the very least. Then she forces Odo to reveal things about himself that he doesn't want to reveal. And while that should perhaps tell us something about his character, it's inconsequential because the person with whom he shared, the person to whom he bared his soul, is not going to be here at the end of the episode. It's exposition for us is the problem that I have with it. It explains a lot for the viewer. And as a viewer, the life of the party stuff and the fact that he was experimented on or studied is very sad and it tells us a lot, but it's just stuff for us. And what I really wish is that he had shared that with somebody who's going to be around because that would actually grow his character. Right now, all they're doing is giving us more backstory about Odo. And I'm glad that I have that more backstory, but his character... It just feels like a violation, honestly, that he has to reveal this to somebody who just won't let up until he reveals it. He could have not told her everything bad that had happened, just told her that he was going to turn into water, and she still could have saved him. We had a great moment between him and, 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 and Kira mm-hmm. in the second episode of this show uh, that I can't remember, uh, past prologue. And past prologue, Kira goes to him and says, how much do you know about me? And he says, probably more than you think. And and he shows both a knowledge of her and an understanding of her that sort of surprises her and yet guides her to a better place by the time that episode ends. They should have had this moment. Somebody should have had this moment where we can actually see, where we can see a connection formed. Because all this felt like to me was some stranger coming in, picking a scab, and then leaving. Hmm. And, and, and that kind of, that, that annoyed me. And I'm glad we know those things about him. It's just, it's just stuff that we know now and not stuff that informs his experience on DS9. It seems to me. I'm, I, I'm okay with that. Um, I, I'm obviously I'm not okay with the method. I'm not okay with Waxana picking and prodding and being overbearing and harassing him. Mm-hmm. That's a problem with her character. Now she, uh, Thank goodness we end the episode, or at least we end her arc in the episode, with uh, her taking off the wig and, uh, and and revealing something about herself, making her less of a caricature. But I'm I, I'm perfectly okay where we are in the series, revealing something about Odo to the audience that's for the audience, because we don't know how this will play out. Let Let's say this series goes on for like six more seasons. <laughs> You know, okay. just yeah. just grasping here at straws, right? Um, then it, it is something that we get to carry with us and say, huh, you know, there's more to Odo than just the tough guy who's constantly in, you know, cop mode. We, we've seen him be a good cop and a bad cop. We've seen him uh, have this sort of almost uh, uh, paternal affection for Jake, which is really nice. Right. Um this is one more thing to add to him that that I'm okay with with it just being for us now. Um, maybe there will be something that is revealed from that to other people on the station with him. Maybe not, but I'm I, I'm all right with it. It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't bother me the the way that it does you. Well, I mean, it bothers me because well, I already said. I mean, here's yeah, here, here's yeah, the yeah. thing though we we've seen this as well. Okay, so. I can't remember which one it is where they keep calling him Shifter. Oh, a man alone. A man alone, we see like what happens there and we see his uh, co-workers, his compatriots, the people uh, whose names we know, gather around him. And theoretically, that builds some sort of bridge. In Vortex, 
we see him go off and do something in Vortex. People don't remember is the one with Cliff de Young. And the guy says, hey, I know where there are more shapeshifters. And it turns out, no, he doesn't. But then mm-hmm. Odo goes ahead and, you know, lets him go because he's got a daughter and whatever. In Vortex, we see stuff happen that nobody else sees, but we see it. And, and it sort of feels informative of the character because when he is away, he does this thing that he thinks, you know, um, might not be kosher, might not be copacetic. He, he mm-hmm. He's going to lie, which is something he would never do on Deep Space Nine, or at least not to this point. <sighs> something about this one just doesn't work for me. It feels, it, it feels, they could have just had him monologue this. Right. Yeah, but it, I, I feel like it, it was the it was the right reveal at the right time because uh, Odo's not a guy who spills his guts to everybody. I mean, he could literally spill his guts to everybody, but because <laughs> he's he's water. Um, but but he he's not a guy to do that. But in this rare moment of weakness, uh, really pushed to the limit, it, it, it came out. And and it's nice that at the end, Loxana basically says, "Look, your secret's safe with me." I. It's okay. Actually, what Loxana does at the end is go back to being the same caricature. He said, I really appreciate it. And she says, I'll give you more to appreciate next time. Yeah, I, it, right. Because that that's the face that she puts on <sighs> when she's out in public. We don't have to agree with that because she's kind of terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but when it is back, back you know, we, we've had that moment behind closed doors. Now we're back out in public. She's going to be who she is. He knows something about her and vice versa. And, and it's okay. And then they can pick and choose who gets to know the truth about, uh, uh, about themselves when they want to reveal it. Okay. You've almost got me talked into it. <laughs> well, well, I better stop then because I, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't is what I was going to say. So, so don't yeah. worry. You're, um, yeah, no, we are, I believe, where we began uh, this segment, both of us. Uh, but talk to me about messages. I will tell you honestly, maybe it is because of all the problems that I had with the episode. I, I, I pulled none out. I was not able to get any. I mean, because, I mean, I could find some, but they're practically written in crayon. I mean, the cardboard out of which these characters are cut might be the same sort of thing. Um, I might be able to find like a, um, oh, see, Julian's not so bad if you just give him time. So maybe that's something the ambassadors need to learn. But I, I, I feel like I've insulted everybody by even trying to put a message on that story yeah. arc. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he'll help you escape from a fireball if a plasma <laughs> explosion happens in your corridor. You know? Right. And yeah. he's just trying to get you down that corridor anyway because he started dealing with you. Yeah, no, yeah. but I mean, were there messages that you found, sir, that, I mean, come on, give me something, John. No, Give not, me not something right. for crying out it's, loud. It's not a message episode. It is a character episode. If you were to pull a message from the character, well, look, Odo learns how to be vulnerable. It's nice to see that. We needed to see that as an audience because, okay, we're going to make it through an entire season with him just being kind of the tough guy with little glimpses of something underneath. Now there's really something underneath. Um, you know, there's a couple of lines here. Uh, uh, Loxana saying, I never cared to be ordinary. And she, uh, she refers back to Odo saying, even we non-shapeshifters have to change who we are. Um, it, it's not a message, but there's something kind of sad and true, at least in her delivery, sad and true that, uh, that, that maybe there's an emptiness that she's trying to, to cover up by all of her over the top, very, very showy uh, presence that she has. You know what stinks? She's mm-hmm. a great character. I mean, she could be a great character. Half a life shows what a great character she can be. And I love the idea of a character who owns, who owns her presence, who owns her sexuality, who owns, mm-hmm. who owns who she is. I love the fact that she wore the wig. Honestly, that part did get to me. It made me wish that I had enough hair to dye, honestly, because <laughs> I used to always want to dye my hair like fire engine red, and I never did because I was worried about what other people would think of it. And now I shaved my head because I don't have enough hair to, to dye anymore. I just don't. And it kind of bums me out. I love things about her character, but her presentations are just, nah, man, it just it, it, it bums me out a lot of times. And of course, there's sexual harassment, but what are you going to do? It's Loxana. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find more podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com. You got Mission Log, you got Mission Log Live, which we hope you all join us for. You have Women at Warp, you have Priority One, you have the Trek Files, and more on the way. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next episode, Dramatis Personae. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I wish I had a computer puppy. Tamagotchi. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.